This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. So we were, uh, I was riding my bike home through Cambridge into Somerville, and I was coming through Kendall Square, which is like this high-tech kind of area of Cambridge, and behind me I heard a bell, and I was like, oh, somebody's ringing their, somebody, some other cyclist is ringing their bell at me, and I turned around and there was nobody there. And then I heard more bells. And I was like, wait a minute. I know those bells. And there was a car just behind me to the left that was listening to our podcast. That, that's, that's, that's a very low probability. That's cool. It was, I mean, it's Kendall Square in Cambridge, so it's not too bad. I don't know how many Rails developers are over there or anything. But uh, it was interesting. And then like, I became incredibly embarrassed, And even though their window was down. And they were, at that point, sitting right next to me. I didn't say anything. <laughs> I just looked down and was like, please don't recognize me. I don't know why I was embarrassed. I was just embarrassed. You should have just commented Ben like, hey, man, good podcast. I like your choice. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Josh. Hi, Derek. So we're joined by Josh Clayton, Development Director at our Boston office, correct? Yes, yes that's, that's right. Latest title. How many titles do you hold now? One. I, Just I one? don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I feel like we need to give you more. Yeah, I, I'll take more. I mean, what do you want to throw at me? I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Josh is here because uh, late, like on a Thursday night when I was screwing around with RSpec view specs, I had bumped into a problem with verified partial doubles in view specs. There's really no way to do this without getting super technical right off the bat. <laughs> um, so verified partial doubles are, as far as I can tell, when you try and stub something, stu if you're stubbing an actual object, it's going to verify that that method exists on the object you're stubbing. Is that correct? Yes. yes. Okay. So I was doing that in a view spec. The problem is when you define... Uh, helpers, or when you, when you use helper method in a controller to expose a helper to a view, the view doesn't actually implement the method that you want to stub. So like current user, if you define current user in a helper method in a controller, when you do view, or when you do allow view to receive current user and return, you know, my stubbed user, our spec has no idea that current user exists on view because through Rails magic, it actually does not. Right. I mean, for zero argument functions, you could work around that with uh, assigns. Right. You could just pass in a local variable. Right. But if it takes arguments, of course, that doesn't work. Right. And in my particular case, it was actually a pundit. I was trying to stub the policy helper method right. on, from pundit. And so I had to come up with a way to do that. And the options were like, oh, I, I figured like there were no real great options. I could turn off verifying partial doubles, which to me seemed pretty heavy handed. But in hindsight, looking at it, I don't think you actually want those on the view object. I mean, I guess I also consider partial mocks in general to be a smell. So I don't mind having verified partial doubles turned off just because I don't personally like to use them terribly often. If I'm going to be uh, working with a fake object, I'd rather just pass in an entirely fake object rather than a real object with one or two methods stubbed out. Yeah, that, that does make sense. But I think it's specifically in the case of view specs. View specs are one of the things where you end up stubbing what's under test a lot. Yeah, yeah. The, other, the other thing, too, is when you're rendering partials and you're trying to test partials, 
you typically don't want those partials to know about instance variables, so you wouldn't use assigns in that case. Right. Which makes it trickier. But you could still pass in locals, right? When you you call could, it but it's so nice when you can just call render and have it do its thing instead of describing and then the path to the file, and then you have to call render and then give it the path to the file and then pass any locals in addition to that. So you lose that niceness of just being able to call render in the partials like you do the normal views. So yeah, I kind of I kind of like to go the opposite way on it, right? Because I think that you should always use locals for partials. Because yeah, you're trading the niceness of being able to call it, but what you're gaining from that is the partials now explicit about what it requires. It exactly. might not require all of the state that the parent view required. You have an explicit interface if you mess something up or if you don't have. I mean, in general, I I, I avoid instance variables even in the parents, just because the nice thing about like using a memoized helper method, for example, is if you forgot to pass that into the view then you get a no method error and not nil. So you would have helper methods in the controller. You would have methods in the controller declared as helper methods, and then you would have those available in the views and just invoke those methods? That's usually the pattern that I follow, yeah. Okay. And then memoize them in the, in the controller. There's a gem that does this. Decent exposure? Yep. Yeah. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't feel, what, it, what, is that, what would that get you? I feel like I've used it a couple times and been like, if I want to do this, I just use helper method. Is there something else that it's, my use of it is like two or three years old now, so I don't really remember what it, what it was. But do you guys have any recent experience with that? Mm-mm. Okay. No, I just feel like remembering when I tried to use it, it uh, I felt like I was over abstracting. Yep. It's very heavy handed for what it tries to accomplish. Okay. Um, Right. Anyway, but yeah, so we were going to talk about view specs because... Uh, right, so your, that, your response that. to that was like my, my waffling between whether or not I should disable partial, disable verifying partial doubles, or if I should do this crazy thing that I ended up actually doing, which was like extending the view with some methods. Like when you call policy, it's like if a view ends up in, in my test suite now, let me back up. <laughs> in my test suite, if a view ends up calling the policy helper, it raises an error and says, in order to spec this view you must stub the policy method. Because what I've done is for all view specs, I've gone ahead and defined po- the policy method on view. So I've changed the, su- the subject under test or system under test by saying that views do actually implement this policy method, even though they don't actually, and it's just done at runtime with Rails magic. Hmm. I can link to the commit for that is actually open source. So I can link to that in the show notes, which will be at bikeshed.fm slash 20. So you can see the craziness that I ended up doing. So I was waffling between doing this and just disabling the verified partial doubles, and you were like, well, why don't you just use an integration spec or a, you know, a feature spec for that? Is that typically... You, you, don't, you don't typically do view specs, correct? No, okay. that's correct. So I felt like even at ThoughtBot where we do a lot of testing, I feel like I'm in the minority and doing a decent number of view specs. And my counter to like, why don't I just do a feature spec is sometimes... Well, quite often, almost all the time, a feature spec is going to take a lot more setup. It's going to be slower. And if you're doing something like just testing a conditional in a view, you're going to be repeating a lot of the other tests that test the other branch of that conditional in the view. Sure, but conditionals in your views should be excruciatingly painful. Uh, maybe. Like in, in this particular case, it's like, do I show you a link that lets you create a new one of these objects or I'm not, I'm not saying that you don't have any but like that's I, for me when you, it's slow to test something that's valuable that's valuable feedback that's also why I, uh, I I dislike spring because it removes the feedback of you have a lot of code that depends on rails which shouldn't necessarily be true for all apps or most apps hmm <laughs> on the feature level though you're always going to have code that depends on rails 
Like so, yes. so what we're talking about is a trade off between a view spec and a feature spec. Like you have right. dependency on Rails either way. No, yeah, um, but but what I'm saying is, if you're testing it, if you're you know when you have a condition on your view, if you have to test that with a feature spec, I'm okay with that because that adds a big cost to every condition you add in your views. I guess, but like to what end? Like, am I that's not going to remove the conditional in my view? That is, should I show this user a create post link or not? Right. So in that case, what I have to do, like, let's say we're looking at a a, a list of posts, an index post for, for an index page for posts. And at the bottom of the thing or at the top of the thing, I'm going to have a create new post button, but only if you're authorized to show that new post. So if I'm going to test both instances of those, I have to go through a lot of setup in both of those cases, go through the whole Rails stack just to say, like, yep, this policy is working as it should in this view or this, this conditional in this view shows the button or does not show the button. Or something trivial like that, I feel like it's a user experience issue that if, if that button shows up and it shouldn't show up is a user experience issue. Because I have other authorization that back up that right. you're not actually going to be able to create a new post if you don't have authorization to do it, right? So a view spec for me, like it's not a ton, like with the amount of stubbing that you end up doing in a view spec, it doesn't give you a, a ton of like certainty that you that this is actually going to, like that it's going to work as you think it does in the view spec. I've seen situations where the view specs pass and then in, in your feature spec, they don't. But for something like that, that's kind of like, I feel like a view spec is good coverage for that. It's very straightforward, and I can feel confident that I've covered it well mm -hmm. without having to go through the whole test. Josh? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I'm in the same boat. I think what really drives me crazy when I'm going through and in, in, in reading uh, feature specs is, you know, you have, you know, much like you mentioned, Derek, you've got a ton of duplication. You're going through maybe five or six different pages to get to this end result where you're asserting very specific things about what's displayed or not displayed depending on that outcome. Like, why would you go through six or seven steps to go through and verify what's on that page when you can just isolate that at the view level, you know, pass in whatever you need to do and basically recreate any conditionals that you need to and test it in isolation? Like, I mean, is it really going to be six or seven steps though is i mean for me if we're talking about testing a view as a view spec or testing it as a feature spec or with a view test it'd be mocking out all the methods or instance variables that it needs mm -hmm. and then rendering the view and for a feature test it would be setting up all of the database values so that it gets the instance variables it needs and then going to the page that renders it but it seems like it should be the same number of steps either way right but what value is a feature test if you're not testing a flow through the app like, I don't see what the point would be to test a feature spec. The whole point of a feature spec is to test, like, I'm going through and I am accomplishing this task. And in most of the applications we build, that means, like, multiple steps of going through the app. Like, you're going to be interacting with, you know, a handful of different pages. Like, if you have a, a feature spec where all it does is it puts stuff in the database, you hit one endpoint, you click on a link, you fill in a form, you hit submit, and then you verify that. Like, I'm not sure what the value is. I mean, the value for me is you, I mean, you don't have all of your tests written that way. You certainly have some tests. You have loose coverage that says, mm -hmm. that, that demonstrates the flow's uh, work. And then if you have additional branches or edge cases at a single step of that flow, mm -hmm. then you skip some of this, you know, you, you replace some of the parts of the flow with just set up in the test. Right, right. Yeah, there's, I kind of fall in between, I think. I'm willing to take on faith that I have a link from the homepage to this other page, right? I don't need to start everything at the homepage. Kind of right. similarly to how, like, 
I have one test that in my test suite that lo- that tests that I can actually log in through the login form, and for the rest of them, I use clearances backdoor mm-hmm. in test mode or whatever or whatever whatever else. And if you're not familiar with that, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. But I have definitely worked with people who are more like workflow driven for every feature spec, and it kind of drives me crazy because then a lot of tests break if you change like the name of a link or uh, you change the the flow of something. You've got a lot of different breakages that are disconcerting when you first run the test, and then you make one change and they all are green again, which is great. But it's it's not twenty things that are broken. It's just one small thing, and you've now messed up all of these tests, and it makes me feel like we're testing too much navig like testing navigation. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not too interested in that. I guess like. I'm happy enough to have a general idea that like like if we had I'm having a hard time thinking of an example but I wouldn't like I like I said earlier I wouldn't necessarily start everything at the home page and then navigate through the app that right. way for every instance. Yeah. Right. And you use factory girl instead of inputting all data through the forms. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. obviously. I I think if like links are breaking or forms are breaking like formulaic is a is a huge help there. I think using I18N keys within both your specs and mm-hmm. throughout the app that's going to help. So that you know if there's copy changes or whatever, like that shouldn't break a test suite, or unless it should, right? Like I can see there being cases where you actually do want to test that it's displaying the correct text, and you want you know that direct assertion versus like just referencing the keys. In that case, would you be okay with a view spec though? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it, um, it depends. I guess the case for that would be like. If you had certain legal copy that needed to absolutely needed to appear, sure, that type of thing, sure. I don't know. So, I mean, for me, views are kind of a black box. They're not a thing that wants to be tested in isolation because to test it in isolation, you have to care about way too many implementation details. Um, I always found that view specs tend to be really brittle if I move things out into different partials or if I change the structure of the markup. Like for me, when you're testing your your markup, it really only matters in the context of the whole page. And if you're just testing the outermost view for that page, I, I, I just don't think that you're gaining that much. Yeah, your test runs a little bit faster, but in terms of setup and what you're practically testing, I don't think that you gain that much by skipping the controller. And you may as well just do, do it through. You don't even have to necessarily do it with Capybara, right? You can always just use the the uh, get method in in the Rails integration test case. but uh, And that would go through rack test instead and saves you some time. But I'm not sure you get much by skipping the controller. Like, you're going to have the same setup either way. I mean, I think you'll have far... I mean, the typical way... Uh, you you mentioned, like, testing the outermost... The the top-level view. Is that what you were testing, talking about? Yeah. I would almost never write a view spec on, like, a show page. Unless there are no partials in that show page. Like, I'm more likely to test the fringes. The leaf, the leaf nodes, I guess, in the tree of views. I'm more likely to test those. And my ideal structure is like a view that's three lines long or five lines long, like that kind of thing. I'm just, I'm mm-hmm. aggressively extracting partials usually if I have right. like, you know, the time to do what I want to do in a application. But I'm usually ex- aggressively extracting partials to the point where some people might be concerned that it's a performance problem. But then for me, right, that, so and like I said, I don't like tests breaking because I moved something from one partial into another or, you know, that structure feels very much internal to my app and much more likely to change than, for example, the structure of my, the objects in my system. Yeah, and that's then, fair. I, I mean, there's definitely value in, in saying this partial works in isolation, but you, you also have to, you still have to be testing that the partial, for example, is in the right place on the page, on the right page with the right inputs. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm still going to test my views. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I don't know if there's, 
you know, there's probably times where I would test whatever is in a partial, but I would be much more explicit about my tests, you know, at a view level than I would at a, at an, at a feature level, because at a feature level, like, unless it's absolutely positively necessary that it needs to be at a certain spot in the page, like I'm not going to get too explicit about, um, you know, the CSS selector that will find the element. Whereas uh, in a view spec, I would be much more explicit because I do care about the structure at the view level. I'm generally not, actually. I'm not explicit at, at any of those levels, really, to kind of divorce myself from, like, in view specs, I think we should say, like, by default, the type of matcher you get is, like, you basically do a regular, regular expression match on what gets rendered in the view, which is pretty terrible. But we usually wrap that in capybara string. What are you? You're, yeah, you're smiling. Yeah. So you know the the regular expression matching like that, or like just have content that I've been bitten so many times by tests, be it at, at a feature level or at a view level, where we're just testing that text is present on the page somewhere. We don't really give a shit where. That it's just, it, I just refuse to use has have content anymore unless I've already scoped it inside a, of a within block. Interesting. So like I ran into some multiple really nasty issues on one of the projects that I'm on right now. It was a couple of weeks ago and I was just swearing up and down trying to figure out like why all these things were broken. Like there were a number of very subtle bugs uh, in mystery guests and dependencies on, you know, the way that the, the test data was set up in factory girl because we were using have content. And once I converted it to have CSS, like all of those bugs uh, were basically demonstrated very easily, but it wouldn't, you know, it wasn't reproducible just by have content. Yeah. I mean, I guess if I looked at my view specs right now, I'd probably see a lot of like have link. Cause again, a lot of what I'm doing is like based on your permission, do, do you see this link or not? Do you mm-hmm. see this button or not? Like whatever, like those types of things. So I wouldn't necessarily look for like, where does that link appear on the page? But like, you know, if I'm, if I'm rendering a table of widgets and you might have a delete link, I would create one widget, render the view, and then say, you know, does it have a link for delete? Yeah, and like be, I, and be I wouldn't, I wouldn't, that. I wouldn't go into like descendant selectors or sibling selectors or anything wild. It's just like, right. does this show up on the page? Right, and it, and I, and it feels right. like it's in our well. And roughly. one other thing to keep in mind too, though, is if you ever uh, start doing a lot of caching on your pages, uh, you're either just not going to be able to cache this partial, or you're going to have to do it in a way that can't be tested at the view level, right? Because then you'll have to push that conditional into adding into. Uh, I guess well, you'd have to remove the con- you'd have to remove the conditional entirely and just have a what, a, cl- a class on the link itself that then adds display none if the if at, like at the top level if the user happens to be based on the the. You, you I see what you're saying. Like what you would what you would do probably is like put a use some JavaScript to like put a class on the body that says like what the user's permissions are, and then use CSS to hide the links that should be like that kind of thing. Right, or you have some inline CSS, uh, and you add display none on that link if the user is, uh, you know, whatever conditional. But uh, I mean, if you have have inline CSS, would have the same problem, right? If anywhere you're referencing at the top of the page. Oh, at the top of the page. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. Anywhere you're referencing current user at all (laughs) is not is going to break a cache. I mean, you'll get a single user cache. Congratulations. Well, uh, Well, actually, no, you uh, won't. You'll only get the single user cache if you add current user to your cache key. Right. Otherwise, you're going to be breaking caching. And if you add yeah. current user to your cache key, now you have a single user cache. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is the one thing to keep in mind, too, though, is when you're going through Capybara or something that's actually simulating a browser, right? 
when you make the when you make these assertions, it's not based on the markup. It's based on what's actually displayed on the page, and it doesn't care if it's uh, not displayed on the page because it was displayed none, or if it was not displayed on the page because the markup wasn't there in the first place. Right. We were saying I was saying earlier, like usually by default, you just say you just check what was rendered against a regex. We typically in our project will have capybara matchers on them, but at that point, you're not going to get the CSS involved, so you're not going right. to know that something's hidden. And you could you could certainly test that the class is added right, but then you're not testing that the class does the right thing. So you end up having to test it at the feature level anyway. Otherwise, you risk like a designer removing that class or something, and then everything stops working, but the test still breaks. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Th- so there was a blog post there a few years ago. Maybe it was only a couple years ago, but it's basically decoupling the data from the presentation. And so the idea is you use data attributes for content that you actually really do care about. Uh, so ideally, you can bind to those both from, you know, the spec standpoint, so be it Capybara uh, or whatever, and then uh, from a JavaScript standpoint. So what that allows you to do is basically rearrange the structure of the markup and, you know, add, rename, change classes that is typically bound to you from a, uh, from a design perspective and use the data attributes to describe the data that's immediately nested whatever element it is. That, that doesn't solve the problem, though, because you still can't conditionally add that data attribute. Mm. What do you mean? Well, the data attribute would always have to be there. Right, if, we're going back, to, if we're going back to, like, the needing to cache this partial. So oh, have right, in there, right, right, right. I'd say the majority of our projects, we don't end up aggressively caching a lot of sure. things. Right. Um, it doesn't come up. Um, no, I'm just looking at this right from what the, the quote-unquote Rails recommended way to develop applications is. Well, I think the Rails recommended way to develop applications would be put current user wherever the hell you want to put current user, right? I mean, that's if I've seen anything on Rails apps. I don't know if it's recommended, but I certainly see it all over the place. Yeah, well, I'm not even talking about necessarily testing practice. I'm more just mean like, no, I mean, I mean, definitely. Like the cache digests are there, or the Russian doll caching is there. So right, I think that from our point of view, we expect that a lot of people are using that in their applications. And on projects that I've been on long enough to reach the point, reach the point where I do have the partials I want extracted, it actually is a noticeable impact to performance time, like however many partials that you're rendering. Yeah. Um, and so having that Russian doll caching actually proved to be pretty nice, like on the T1D project we did. Yeah. We had so many partials that it got to the point where a significant amount of the server-side time for rendering a page was finding was looking up partials and rendering them. Which, and of course, you know, that cost will start to go down as well based on the stuff that we talked about in episode, what, 14? 13, maybe, with Aaron? Yeah. And we were, you know, we were talking about he wanted to do better caching the lookup. And then I was also thinking that in production, it would make sense if we just completely inlined the partials. Right. Yeah. I'd be plus one on that. Yeah. You know, small, trivial task. (laughs) Yeah. Just just do it. I think Josh's point about, like, regardless of, like, how the, uh, of the current user and the caching and stuff. The point about using having something that developers can use to signal like functionality and leaving the classes for designers to use for styling and semantics or whatever they want to use them for. Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. Like yeah. we did that on Reserve Game, which is a project that uh, Josh and I worked on together, um, where we use data attributes to signify things that we wanted, pro- like something we wanted to expose to JavaScript. Obviously, data attributes are great, but we even use them for things that we wanted to style program, like programmatically on. Like this should be hidden; a user should not see this, right? right. So we use data attributes for that. My problem with that is was laziness mostly, in that like Capybara has really great easy syntax for selecting on a class, right? 
but selecting on a data attribute is a lot more wordy because you've mm -hmm. got to do the the brackets and all that other right. stuff. Well, your markup's significantly more wordy as well. Right, the markup. It's yeah. like, you know, Rails has like the data helpers for link to, but you've got mm -hmm. to do the data with the hash and then the, or you can do data dash with a string, those types mm -hmm. of things. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit I think that's also easier with, uh, with the quoted symbol Ruby 1.9 hash syntax thing in Ruby 2.2. Quoted symbol. In Ruby 2.2, you can put quotes around the key of a hash literal. Without having to switch to string keys, you can just use, continue to use symbol keys and then you just add quotes, oh. and it works. I don't know if I knew that. Interesting. But it's a little confusing because then it looks like it's the, like the Ruby one nine version of string keys, but it's not. It's just symbol keys, but with like interpolation. <laughs> wow! Fantastic. We have on our list to discuss at some point is symbols versus uh, versus keys, but I don't think I want to symbols versus strings. But I don't know if I want to get into that right now. Yeah, no, that's not. Um, <laughs> What I was going to say is, uh, as a compromise to like, oh, this is kind of a pain to do these data attributes everywhere. I've seen people do like prefixed classes are for development and non prefix like JS dash would oh, be yeah. like. Uh, <laughs> Josh is cringing. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Josh. It makes you want to cry. Why? Like, Why? How the, is it different, really, than data dash? I feel like so the problem that I have is you're designating this as JavaScript only when it's right. not actually just JavaScript. Right. Like, the whole idea behind the data attributes is it's another separate mechanism independent from CSS classes or IDs that would allow you to interact with the set of elements. I feel like a prefix uh, on a class is just, it's, it feels hacky to me. Yeah, I'd agree with the whole like JS thing. I've never done the JS thing. I've just seen it and had that problem where it's like, well, actually, this isn't just for JavaScript. I'm styling mm. it now. <laughs> so, right. Right. JS CSS dash. Like I don't like. <laughs> what do we do now? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you guys on this entirely. Data attributes are the way to go. Does mini test test unit whatever it is that Rails does by default now? If you're not using RSpec, does that have an equivalent to a view spec? It does not. Correct. Like you cannot test a view in quote unquote isolation, out of the box with. I think we do. Really. Yeah, I'm pretty sure our spec Rails, like I think their view spec just inherits from a Rails thing. Let me check. Yeah, look that up. There's no like test views that gets generated automatically, as far as I can tell. I've never seen one. It mixes in action view test case behavior. Yeah. Oh, never mind. There is action view test case. So why isn't there a test views? I guess because they don't think you should be doing this. Uh... Is there a test views? I don't know. Somebody run Rails new. <laughs> I think I thought there was a test views, um, but I could be wrong. I've certainly, never I'm not seen sure. It. But yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, and this ultimately comes back down to the argument of against us deprecating assigns and assert template, right? Because if you are testing this partial or this view does the right thing when given the right inputs, presumably you also then at some point need to test that it is in fact given the right inputs. And unless you have a way to test the output from the other side then you have to do that through an integration test anyway. Um, but you can make that point about any test that, is, that does any mocking or stubbing. At some point, you're going to make a decision that the coverage you have is sufficient without going to a feature-level spec on every single thing you're testing. Right. I mean, you test that it, so you, it works when given the right inputs. You test that it's given the right inputs, and then you have very loose coverage that, like, and all of that still works when you remove the boundaries. But you, you would still want to test every one of those boundaries. In isolation. Real-time follow-up, I ran Rails new. Okay. Uh, the test folder has controllers, fixtures, helpers, integration, mailers, and models. So no views. Okay. I guess 
Do they expect you to do render views in the controller, maybe? Um, I don't remember if we do that by default or not. I'm so not up to date with like what the testing practices not using RSpec are. Yeah, me I'm either. I'm like 90% sure they disable rendering by default. Okay. What do you guys think about that? Like, should we render views in controller specs? Like we had we when we had Sam Fippen on, he mentioned that like when he works with Sarah May, that's like the first thing she does is turn on turn on render views to see what breaks. I mean, I it would increase the time in controller specs, I imagine. What what I mean, yeah. what's the goal? What are you trying to accomplish by rendering views? Is do, it a smoke test? Like yeah, I mean, I guess it would be like do your templates exist, right? That's what it, do do your templates and partials all exist? Right. I mean, I would hope that there's a integration test that covers that, <laughs> right? But. I mean, for me, the only time I'm writing controller tests is when I have some specific HTTP semantics to deal with, you know, like certain headers or it needs to respond with specific response codes. Because for me, that's the controller's responsibility is HTTP. What about like sessions and cookies? Does that fall into that category? I don't usually like to test those specifically. I think that the side effects of the session and cookies are more important, but I honestly can't think of a... I don't think I've had a complicated enough case for that because usually the most complicated thing I'll be doing with a cookie is like, did they see this notification? Sure, sure. I would say I typically do authorization type stuff in a controller, which I guess is HTTP kind of because you're looking for maybe a 401, 403, whatever the appropriate one is. Right. Or a reader. And usually I'm just asserting that they got, for HTML stuff, I'm just asserting you got redirected to sign in or something like that. Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's basically what you'll see in my controller specs are generally sad path stuff that I didn't want to cover from a feature level. Right. Well, and that's and that's sort of my point, right? Is for me at least, those tend to not be things where rendering views would make a difference because right. we're not hitting a view. Well, then it wouldn't hurt, right? And then maybe it would catch something. True. Hmm. <laughs> Food <laughs> for thought. Um, I mean, I don't know. For me, all of this is like. I don't feel like there should be that much logic at either of these levels. And most of the unit tests should be living on models or whatever other names you've given for the buckets that you've placed all of your objects in. But the controllers should generally have almost no logic and the views should generally have almost no logic. So I'm not, I, I just see, I guess I see less value in spending time testing those in isolation and maintaining those tests, which t- tend to be more brittle compared to testing the rest of the objects in the system and then just having integration tests, which, yeah, will we'll potentially run slower, but then, you, you know, that just gets into the test pyramid generally. Explain what you mean by the test pyramid. Lots of uh, unit tests, fewer integration tests. Right. What about deleting tests? Oh, yeah. What do you guys think about deleting tests? I delete tests all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably, especially for integration tests, I, w- I think I usually only commit about a third of the tests that I write. Oh, interesting. Huh. I mean, I still I still write all the tests so that I know when I'm done with whatever, you know, working on whatever I'm working on. And I'll actually usually have every branch fully tested from an integration test, but then I'll throw away any extraneous ones that I don't think uh, are actually improving my coverage over things that I'm sufficiently comfortable with my yeah. testing of them in isolation. I think that's typically what I'll do, especially if I open up a feature spec. Like I'm thinking when I think about deleting feature specs, I mean deleting something that was already committed. And mm. usually what I'll do is I'll open up a feature spec and I'll see like five scenarios in there. I'm mm-hmm. like, what? And I'll find one of these things where like, I, I feel like I can replace this with a view spec and feel perfectly happy about right. this. Right. And that's typically where I'll be like, oh, let's just do a view spec here. Or, oh, this is sad past stuff. I can probably get away with a controller spec here. Let's just do that. Mm-hmm. So it's still getting tested though. 
Yes, I don't just decide I don't need the test coverage there anymore. Okay. Usually, I don't think I can't remember a time. But I'm sure I've done it. But I, mean, I guess <laughs> for me, I generally want one feature test per branch per page, and then if the conditional gets more complicated, I would let you know I want to have all of that conditional logic encapsulated inside of an object, and then I can just pass a fake object in the feature test to test that like the conditional is being called correctly, and we go to the right page. How about if you? How about forms? So like we've got a user creates a post feature, right? So they log in, they have to provide they have to provide us a uh, title and some text and maybe some tags or something. So you do your happy path test and you're like, yep, it created a post. It sent me back to the page where I could see the post and I can see the content there. I'm happy. Would you also write one that says like they forgot to give us a subject, make sure it re-renders the form and that the error is displayed? Unless that is business critical in that it can cost me money or cost my users money. No, Josh. I would I would also say say no, but that brings me back to the have content argument that I had mentioned earlier. Because if you were asserting against both, both on both pages, you would see that like the subject of that post if you're using have content. So you would you wouldn't right. actually know that like it might look correct, but you're actually re-rendering the form. Right. 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 So you'd have to do some sort of thing to make sure you're actually looking at the confirmation page and not the form again. Right. I would typically also not test the sad path of like, like usually I'm using simple form. I'm confident that it, and I'm confident in my controllers that I have probably written else render new, or right. if I have not, then I don't know, something interesting is going to happen. But <laughs> I guess you could, you could argue that in that case, if I didn't call save bang and I just called save. Right. And I did not test that an, an invalid form re-rendered and did not. Like then at that point, you're going to have data loss for a user, right? They've typed this five-paragraph long post they've and then got redirected to something that didn't exist and they had an error. I guess they could click Yeah, back. you'd get a 500 probably because it, it would, uh, right, because you'd redirect right. to index. You'd re, or redirect back to, like, if I'm trying to redirect back to the show page for a thing that doesn't exist, I'd get a 500. Well, you'd be for, it'd be for a non-persisted record, and so that would go to index. Because it'll use the same logic we use to decide where the form submits to. Oh, okay. I think I could be wrong. Wait, if you you're talking about posting to create, if there's a condition around save, then wouldn't it try and render create, and it right. would bomb? I guess it would depend on how you do your redirect, right? Do you say redirect to instance variable, or do you say redirect to post post path right. post? And then you'd get the nil is not whatever right missing required id something like that oh i see right. so it's just if you call save without right. checking if it's true or false right i mean this is actually the kind of stuff where okay so as an aside because i think one of the places that we're going to get into here from here is should a matchers which <laughs> i don't see a lot of value in most of the time but um the thing i do think we could have better tooling around is basically some forms of automated linting so you know, being able to examine a Rails app and saying, like, you called save here and did not check the return value, you should be using the bang version. And then with shoulda matchers, like the, I don't think that having one-to-one, like I added a validation, so I have a test that's literally the exact same line, because at that point I may as well just be grepping the source code of my model for that exact method call with that exact those exact arguments. But I would love to see more that are like uh, checking, like it should have a uniqueness validation or a unique index if there's a Rails uniqueness validation. It should have foreign keys on all of its associations. It should um, other things. For the for the uh, to touch on some of the validation stuff, would you maybe want to use something like allow value 
Like instead, I like use a lot of value okay. if it's uh, like a more complicated validation that I'm uh-huh. writing, but not for, for testing the Rails val. I just don't. If I'm invoking a Rails validation, uh, I don't generally speaking test it unless, again, it's like price must be greater than zero because that would be business critical. Right. So then, so so like the example being validate name presence true, right? right. And then in your specs, doing it should validate presence of name. Right. And for me, so. When I have tests, they're serving one of two purposes, to catch bugs or to drive the design of my application. And I feel like that test does neither of those. If I was going to forget that validation, I was going to forget to write that test. Yeah. I mean, I, I've sort of come around to feeling similarly over the last year, I would say, that I won't do that typically. I don't think I've ever written the, like, it should belong to something. Right. I don't think I've ever yeah, done that one. Well, especially for associations, right? If there's no feature coverage that would break with that association wasn't present, something is seriously wrong. Right. Or you don't need the association. Like, right, just get right. rid of it entirely. Right. Yeah. So I, I typically, I do a lot of allow value for like custom written validations. Mm-hmm. I want to make yeah, sure that I allow got Allow value is right. great. I do really like the idea, like the linter, the Rails linting that you mentioned of like, I'll, I'm going to lint your call, your controller calls and you called save and you didn't check the return value. So... Use save bang or check the return value. You know what? I, I, I can't Ruby think Mine of a, does that. Ruby Mine does that. I'll bet. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. We'll have to check. I don't have it installed anymore. Also, before we move on, just for people who aren't familiar with what a allow value is, it's just a matcher that should a matcher provides that. Um, if you're writing a test for your own custom validations, you don't want to write that test as like assigning it and then doing assert thing dot valid, because it might be uh, invalid for a completely unrelated attribute. So what allow value will do is it basically assigns a value and then tests that either there is or is not a uh, validation error specifically on that attribute as opposed to anywhere on the model. And there's there's one in there, like, I, I think there's one in there for, like, it should have before filter or before action, which actually just inspects the state of the controller yeah. to see I mean, if it has a filter. There's basically one for every class macro in Rails, I think, at this point. I don't know. I mean, we obviously maintain that gem, and Elliot yes. maintains that gem, <laughs> and we both know and like Elliot. Uh, yes. and he, does oh, good, and that... he does great work with it. Yeah, well, and, and we've talked about this before, and he actually is thinking about maybe adding like the checking database, you know, the database kind of linting, which would be done at mm-hmm. runtime, you know, would, would, would have to be something done at runtime in your test. He was th- he's thinking about maybe adding that in the next version of Shutter Matchers. Right. And I will tip, I'll run occasionally something like um, consistency fail, which will check for some database type thing, or I think it's actually, it goes from, it'll check your Rails validations to verify that you have backed them up right. with the proper like null false or um, unique true, unique true kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I'll occasionally run that, but that would be great if I could get that as part of a test suite. Yeah. that's In a simple way. And I'm thinking we could even wrap all of this up into like, it should have appropriate database valid- level <laughs> validations for Rails level validations that mean the same thing. Nice, short, concise. Just one line, about 400, one test, line. 400, te- 400 <laughs> test cases that get run. Right. <laughs> Anything else on test coverage? I was going to talk about Turbolinks, but we're already 40 minutes, 50 minutes in. Yeah, so I mean, get it. overall, of course, Turbolinks tests next. are good. Tests are great. Tests yeah, are I mean, if, if the argument you're having is what kind of test coverage do I want on this, you're in the right place. Yes. If the argument you're having is do I need to have test coverage on this, like if you're, having, if you're finding yourself at work arguing for writing tests, uh, any test is the right answer. <laughs> 
And, and ultimately, I think if as long as your focus is on that, the worst situation you're going to get yourself into is having a test suite which takes too long to run. And while that is a big problem and can ultimately be a very huge drain on, on the team, like when you start spotting that hap- happening, that's compared to like having an app that doesn't have enough tests, that's an easier, much easier problem to overcome. Mm-hmm. Right. I'd rather have that problem. So I want everybody to be writing lots of tests and having similar arguments that we're having about like whether it should be a view spec or a feature spec. That's a fantastic argument to have. Uh, just write the test. <laughs> yeah. I miss tests. I can't test 3D. <laughs> just using your eyes. Yep, pretty much. I need to. One of these days I want to write, like, uh, it'll only be for regression. It wouldn't be for test driving. But, you know, since I always try and make the passage of time deterministic by basing off of a single uh, clock object that gets injected into every object in my graph, theoretically I should just be able to stub out that single clock object and then what's on the screen should be deterministic so I could do image comparison of screenshots. But, again, that would only ever catch regressions. Right. But it'd be cool. Useful. Yeah. Should we wrap up? Anyway. Yeah, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 20. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Josh Clayton, for joining us today. Uh, if you have any feedback on this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed or email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Bye.